Turb Alpern, the Team One of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. Uh, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is a contributor to Fangraphs and also the uh, proprietor, or at least I should say co-proprietor of SB Nation Mariner's site, Lookout Landing. Uh, Jeff Sullivan joins me on this podcast in lieu of Dave Cameron, that is managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron, because Dave Cameron uh, has become a, uh, a media darling, a sweetheart of America so far as baseball analysis is concerned, and he's uh, recording some episodes, or I don't understand how television works, I'm a, I'm a simple podcast host, uh, but he's, he's uh, uh, recording, I guess, some spots, uh, some segments for Clubhouse Confidential, which can, of course, be found on uh, the MLB network and, and probably the internet somewhere, one assumes on the internet somewhere, however... Uh, in his place, uh, uh, doing a stellar job at analyzing, if not all of baseball, then at least a, uh, a decent percentage of it, a decent portion, is, uh, as I say, contributor to Fangraphs, Jeff Sullivan. In uh, what follows, we talk about uh, more than anything, probably the Raphael Soriano deal, uh, but we also get it, uh, we get deep into Jeff, we, around Jeff, and uh, through a thwart Jeff. We uh, any preposition you can imagine. Uh, except some of the dirtier ones. That is what we do with Jeff Sullivan on this edition of Fangraph Study. I'll leave the rest to your imagination, but I can assure you, uh, it is a uh, it is taught it is a taut and thrilling episode of Fangraph Audio, uh, which features, as I say, Jeff Sullivan, and it begins right now. Yeah, that's what's that's yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to read this one. One dude's blog about Alfredo Soriano, and the page keeps mocking up on some static uh, squarespace.com, and it's a uh, well. Wait, is yeah, it your is it your post about Rafael Soriano? Because I believe you uh, did. You just wrote one about uh, a post about Rafael Soriano, and you are a uh, baseball analyst. I am. Yeah, I am a, a baseball analyst and. Uh, and, and contributor. I consider myself a baseball contributor. Yeah. Nothing I attribute to the experience. But now you're reading about. I'm, I'm never. You're reading about another yeah. another thing about Rafael Soriano right now. Yeah, I was curious to see if I uh, if I missed something about the uh, impact on the Nationals bullpen, and uh, I don't actually care. I just clicked it because it's uh, so little. It's so little holding you back and clicking a link on Twitter. No, that's, that's you, true. Uh, that's true. You're not even interested in. The barrier of entry is. you end up with. Very low. Yeah, I ended up with a launch browser. Although I will say, um, um, I'll say this um, to that effect is that um, really anything that you've spent a decent amount of time uh, like thinking about, I think that you're more likely to be interested in it just because. Yeah, um, and I, I'm certainly of, I'm cautious of writing something and, and being wrong about it. And, I mean, I'm an, I don't understand the Washington Nationals as well as I understand and some of the teams, but I think there's a difference between maybe pursuing follow-up information and then pursuing how signing a closer changes the makeup of the bullpen, because I think it's pretty clear what it says is it just basically pushes everybody else back an inning. So uh, ultimately, I'm already, I already know the conclusion of the post. I don't need to read it, but I'm still determined. I'm actually now more determined to read this post than I was before it started logging in my browser, specifically because it started logging in my browser. <laughs> this is a, what is this? A, we're attracted to that which which flees from us. Um, I think this, this, you're experiencing that right now. 
You, yeah, no, this post is... I, I identified this post uh, on, on the street, and then instead of just being a passerby, now the post has, has seen me and is running away from me, which, of course, makes me more interested in why why is the post being evasive. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to stop this. You should do... You should stop... Here. Right, you should stop it because you now... Um, you're now a, a guest on Fangraphs Audio, and uh, in fact, um, it might shock you to uh, to hear this, uh, but I am, and I'm guessing at least one other person, uh, is curious uh, to hear you say at least some words uh, with regard to the Rafael Soriano thing. And, and I should say, I'm not very interested. I'm probably about as interested, maybe maybe slightly less so than, than uh, before you started writing it. But now, as we've uh, mentioned a little bit more, uh, I think that maybe I'm, I'm curious about it. Uh-huh. Yeah, what are you? Uh, what are you curious about? Well, I don't know. I guess. Uh, I mean, listen. I know that. Re- re- I know that relief pitchers. Here's the thing I know about: is that we generally, uh, um, in, by, by we I mean the sabermetric community, right? We have a way of assigning uh, wins to players via via WAR. And I know that generally, when we take the um, the amount of WAR that uh, relief pitchers produce, on average. And then we look at how uh, around the league how much um, teams are paying in terms of millions of dollars per win. Uh, relief pitchers tend to look overpaid by that measure. Yeah, now, relievers do tend to look overpaid, and I think there's a lot of disagreement over whether or not we're doing that correctly. And then there's there's talk about factoring and leverage and, and various other things. But I think the conclusion you can reach here is all right. Rafael Soriano is now the uh, behind Mariano Rivera, I believe, the second highest paid. Believer in baseball, I, I think that's what uh, what has been getting tweeted, and that should not be the case because Rafael Soriano is not the second base second best reliever in baseball of a certain age out of arbitration years. So I think Soriano. I mean, you look at him last year; he was pretty good. He had an ERA under like two and a half. He was in the Yankee Stadium. That's that's not bad. And he's always kind of beaten his peripherals, etc. But you know, the year before he was not that good, and that was just two years ago. And now he's older. And he's still a reliever, and uh, and now he's one of the Nationals, and he has this this long injury history. So I think it's it's pretty safe to say that regardless of your stance on how to value relievers, Rafael Soriano is getting overpaid relative to that valuation by the Nationals. He's 33. He's got this injury history. He's not elite. He's a reliever, and they don't really need him. But what it does do is make them better, and I think that's probably the sales pitch that Scott Boris made to ownership. And so they're like, yeah, we like, we, we would like to be better. We have millions of dollars, and so they gave him to Rafael Soriano. And now Boris gets some of it, because that's, that's what agents do. So let's just establish the, the terms of the contract. Uh, what are they? The terms are two years, $28 million. There's a $14 million third-year vesting option. That vests if Soriano finishes 120 games over the next two years, and considering he's never finished even 60 games in a season once, let alone twice or two years in a row, I think that vesting option probably – unlikely to get hit. It's not impossible, of course. He will be the closer, but yeah, he, uh, he might get hurt. I think one, maybe two DL stints, and that's that's pretty much shot. He's not going to get that. Okay. Now, uh, and so they, they're paying him that. As you say, this is uh, whether it's the you know the top or the second best, or and I think Jonathan Papelbon, maybe his contract value is uh, greater in terms of overall value, but he's, he's also there. He's being paid like one of the best relief pitchers. You yeah. suggest that uh, well, maybe he's not the absolute best, but he's been decent on a per-inning basis. Yeah, and I think Tappelbond has a, a higher overall value, but his average annual value, I think, is 12.5 uh, 
that sounds about right to me. And so, I mean, sorry, I mean, you're you're talking about a closer on a good closer because he's a good closer, he's a good pitcher, and he's on a very very good team. The Nationals might be the best team in baseball right now, and uh, they're they're young enough that they could again be the best team in baseball. Now we're projecting a year into the future, so I mean, they're in a good spot to pay a lot of money for an improvement. And if you look at their their lineup, if you look at their roster, there weren't a whole lot of areas where they could improve simply. Uh, where whereupon I, I don't mean making some sort of blockbuster trade. And so Soriano was, I mean, they were they were talking about trading Michael Morse for a reliever. And now they don't necessarily have to do that because they just signed a reliever. So they could trade Morse for, I don't know, a lefty. But they could also trade him for a prospect or for another starter, some sort of sixth starter. So there's more flexibility there. Soriano's not going to cripple them. They clearly have this money sitting around. And if they didn't want to spend it on, I don't know, high loach, there's only so many things they could do with it. So let's ask, you, you mentioned, well, here's one thing I like about your writing is that you will frequently acknowledge uh, uh, that there are a number of things we don't know. Uh, do, you, do you acknowledge that right now? That we, that you do? Yeah, I think there's, there's nearly an infinite sort of things that, that we just have no idea. No right. idea. Even baseball things. And so you even, invoke, about, even about ourselves, Carson. Well, I, I, you know, especially about ourselves. And even if we were to... Who's to say? Well, anyway, we'll get to that later during the <laughs> the darker, more uh, introspective portion of the program. For for the moment, let's consider this, right? You invoked the name of Scott Voris before, and you you mentioned that maybe Scott Voris presented a compelling case as to why the Nationals ought to sign Rafael Soriano. Now, we don't necessarily know uh, what a meeting between Boris and you know you know um, the GM there, Mike Rizzo. Uh, at, and the rest of the uh, front office, the Nats. We don't necessarily know what that would look like. We do know that Scott Boris certainly has a reputation of um, forgetting his his clients' uh, good contracts, uh, potentially um, uh, potentially contracts that seem uh, greater of greater value than than the market would would otherwise have previously suggested. Um, do you really think, though, or to what degree do you suppose that Scott Boris's argument on behalf of Rafael Soriano is is the sort of thing that would have netted him this much money? Uh, I, I said I essentially so. against against the Nationals' will, uh, for example. Right. I, I think uh, – so first, I think Boris, certainly around this time of year, he'll – it's less about, I think, meeting with the front office and more about meeting with ownership. He'll kind of go straight to the top, especially with his, his premier free agents, uh, I suspect, because owners, uh, as you might understand, are maybe a little less less adept at, at baseball and roster management because what they want is, uh, is to win, generally the – to uh, have a really good team, and then they'll—they're the ones with the money. So, anyway, Boris—I don't know if you met with Rizzo. They have a good relationship. Maybe you met with Ted Lerner, etc. I think the national—the Nationals clearly, this is not done against their will, uh, per se. I think that would—that uh, would be financial rape. I guess would be one way to put that. That's—that's that's not what happened here. I think the the Nationals were clearly willing, and they just had to be convinced that Soriano was a guy who could get them closer to being a World Series champion, and that is, is clearly, the, clearly the case. I think he makes the bullpen better. I don't know who drops off from the bottom of the bullpen, but nobody nobody is good as Rafael Soriano. And, uh, I mean, Boris might have highlighted the attendance boost maybe from a deeper playoff run or from uh, gaining a win or two or three over the course of the season. He can, of course, highlight the, uh, the Nationals' infamous bullpen meltdown that concluded their 2012 playoff campaign and I don't know, maybe he talks about 
your story and shaking confidence and how you can't rely on these guys. Jordan was in a DL last year, and Clipper has a lot of miles on his arm, so Soriano makes the team better. There are question marks about their good relievers, and so Soriano, proven, comes from the Yankees, etc. There's all these arguments that maybe you wouldn't raise to a, to a Fangraphs audience, but that I think can be pretty convincing to an owner or a GM, especially when you put them all together. Uh, they kind of add up, and it's harder to knock them down bit by bit. What if uh, uh, Ted Lerner, that, I assume that's the owner of the Nationals, is that right? I'm uh, pretty sure. What if Ted I'm Lerner, if Ted Lerner had, <laughs> had asked your opinion, had asked your opinion, Jeff Sullivan, about uh, about this maneuver uh, before uh, before it occurred? Uh, say again? Like if Ted Lerner had been like, uh, <clears throat> Je- hi, uh, Jeff Sullivan, this is Ted Lerner. I got your email from Lookout Landing. Uh, uh, yeah. I've recently uh, been discussing uh, potentially acquiring Rafael Soriano uh, with his uh, with his agent Scott Boris. Do you think this is uh, Do you think this is something we should do? I uh, I would probably recommend that no, you should you should just trade Michael Morse for a reliever, or maybe uh, maybe you could have signed a reliever who's already gone. Maybe you could sign a reliever on, on the market and trade for somebody. I don't. I don't think that this is the move that I would have recommended, but if, if Ted Lerner said, hey, we have this money, we don't really know where to put it, but we're going to spend it now, what should we do with it? I, uh, I mean, maybe it's, it would be, what, this or, this or Kyle Lowe's in terms of, of what's out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, Soriano, there's, there's a clearer space for Soriano than there is for Loach. I'm not convinced that Loach is better than any of the Nationals five starters now. It would be down to him and either uh, arguably broken Dan Heron or whatever you make of Ralph Detweiler, and Detweiler is pretty good. So, Loesch, worse fit, Soriano, better fit, Loesch, more of a commitment than Soriano. So, I, I would not have recommended this, but I would not have been strongly against it, just because if the Nationals had money to move, there's not a whole lot of places they could have put it. You mentioned, of course, the, the other members of um, the Nationals' bullpen, and, and particularly in light of uh, their uh, their loss, I guess, during the last uh, last year's uh, what was that? That was a DS. That was a divisional series, the yeah. National League divisional series. Uh, <clears throat> Dave Cameron has uh, spoken um, a couple times to the effect of a bullpen in the playoffs as opposed to uh, the regular season. During the regular season, it, uh, there's certainly some benefit to having a uh, depth in your starting rotation. However, that's not necessarily the case in the playoffs when uh, you're more likely to use just two or three starters and uh, you also uh, you're sort of more at liberty to tax your bullpen. Uh, of course, adding Rafael Soriano and essentially replacing whoever was going to be what seventh in that bullpen, uh, you know, would help it. Uh, what is this? Uh, what sort of practical advantage would this have for a team um, uh, that is that is in the playoffs? I mean, how, how would this allow them, uh, you know, a better chance of winning? Well, so it makes the bullpen deeper, and you're you're going to carry most of your good relievers, of course, into the playoffs, put them on the roster, and so now if the Nationals want. If you if you put the Nationals in the playoffs tomorrow and you give them the roster they have now, then uh, you can effectively shorten games. You can play matchups easier. What they don't have right now is a lefty who's worth a damn because I think their their top lefty reliever right now is Zach Duke, and that's something they could address. And they probably could have gone after Sean Burnett. But regardless, uh, not about the lefties. It's just it gives them more flexibility. They have it's just a better relief core. And of course, not only does Soriano make them better on talent and uh, and just improve their depth. But what he also does is in the event that um, that Clipper blows his arm out or Storin melts down or even Soriano gets hurt, well, all of a sudden they're better equipped to deal with that that sort of blow. So it 
it makes them deeper and it also protects them against uh, bullpen thinness, if you will. So it's kind of a if, – if relievers are so unpredictable, which they are, and if team bullpens are so unpredictable, which they are, then by adding more quality to it, then you sort of make it a little more likely that it won't be a liability. And right now, with the Nationals being in their position, they, they need to reduce as many liabilities as they can because they're trying to win a World Series. Right. If we think this gives them, I guess, a better chance. I mean, do we? Do we? I suppose it's never a foregone conclusion that a team will make the playoffs. Uh, uh, so, the, because that's the case, it's not a foregone conclusion that the Nationals will. Uh, but I assume, uh, given their performance last year, the fact that, um, well, you know, they have some young players who are getting better, that uh, we would regard them as having a very good chance of making the playoffs. Yeah, I think right now, if you look at everything on paper, I'm, look, I'm waiting for some for some uh, better overall projections, uh, standings projections, because I haven't personally seen any since December before a lot of moves were made. But I think that right now the Nationals would probably be projected to finish with the most wins in baseball. I don't know that for sure. I mean, the Angels are up there and, you know, everybody else. But I think the Nationals are in a good spot. They have the, uh, the best odds of anybody in the division, probably in the league. And so as much as you can believe any of these things right now in January, the Nationals are in a good position. Okay. Are you? Uh, do you have anything more to say about this? Uh, I'm sure I could answer more questions, but not off the top of my head. I don't really have a whole lot. Soriano <laughs> was once traded for Horacio Ramirez. How's that? How's that? <clears throat> Years ago, which Soriano Ramirez? Was traded for Horacio Ramirez. Horacio, the one who. Oh right, okay, right. A former uh, Mariner and Royal. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Dave, Dave can tell you a. Uh, if, if you had Dave in the horn, which you don't, which is why I'm here, Dave yeah. could tell you an anecdote about uh, seeing Soriano early his man is clear and he was just pumping these these tailing fastballs at like 98 99 miles per hour Dave has a story about Soriano striking out Nomar Garcia Parra and uh, the story uh, as it was related to me was that Dave saw Soriano strike out Nomar Garcia Parra so now you don't have to hear that story well in fact you can hear it from me because I was at that game you were yeah uh, you were at that game too uh, yeah if I'm not mistaken um, now I saw the Red Sox I saw the Red Sox uh, play uh, the Mariners at Safeco. I guess it what would have been um, know, the summer of 2000. Blurg. Uh, let's see, 2000. Yeah, maybe it was like uh, 2002, 2001, 2002. Would that have made sense? Yeah, let's call it a two, maybe a three. Yeah, maybe uh, it could have been 2003 too. Yeah, it could have very well been then. Uh, anyway. Uh, yeah, I saw him strike out Nomar Garcia Parra. I was I was in the left field of Safeco, uh, the deep left field of Safeco, and uh, yeah, he was impressive. He was good at striking uh, striking people out. Yeah. In fact, I think we can, without even looking at my locked up locked up computer, I think we can identify it's 2002 because I think in 2003 the Mariners went the whole year using just five starters, and I remember Soriano got a couple spot starts when he first came up. So I think that would be 2002. Yeah, in fact, he was a starter. Uh, it looks like uh, um, I have actually. Um, Found his uh, Fangraphs page. He made, uh, I guess, eight of uh, ten appearances in 2002 as a starter. Yeah, no, yeah, he wasn't bad. And I remember the sentiment at the time, at least among us, was that the Mariners gave up on him as a starter too quick because, of course, that was back in the day of basically all pitchers should be starters instead of relievers because starters are more valuable. And whether or not the Mariners made the right decision, I don't know. I mean, we can't evaluate how Soriano would have turned out. But he had an interesting changeup at the time, and it seemed like a, like they didn't hold him too early. He had a just a fantastic arm, as has been demonstrated by the rest of his career. But I guess given the rest of his career, it all kind of worked out pretty well for him. 
Yeah, and as you note, uh, he he has not he has not been the picture of durability. I don't think you'd say. No, no, he's just, he's definitely not. But he's been better lately. If that makes any difference, he's kind of been through a lot of his injuries. I don't know more than any other reliever. I don't know how much he's going to pitch in the future. But he's not as fragile as his reputation used to be, or at least he hasn't been. Uh, I guess that could be also a small sample size of of playing time, where maybe. If you were to replay his 2012 season yeah. a million times, then uh, then he would spend time on the DL, especially if he replayed it a million times, because that would that would wear down his arm. That's true. He would get very right. tired. Listen, I want to ask you. Uh, I want to ask you about another. Um, let's see, a, a pair of posts you did. I think. Well, today's today's just Monday, so I guess it was towards the end of last week. Uh, you did uh, you did a pair of posts, I believe, on the same day. Uh, one was the let's see, one was the worst. One was the worst called strike. Or worse, called strikes. These are pitches um, that were furthest from the strike zone that were called strikes. And then you did a companion piece, or maybe it was in reverse order. Doesn't really matter. Of uh, the worst called balls, pitches that were uh, most in the middle of the plate, but that were called balls. Is the, um, you did those posts. You agree with that? Yeah, yeah. those are by me. And I don't, I don't think there's really an order of, of companionship. I think they're just they're just partners, such as right. you wouldn't list yourself or your wife before the other yeah. uh, on any regular basis you're just companions yes we you, um, some of that is true what you just said uh, we'll get into that later chronologically yeah the ball, the yeah. ball came first and then right right okay uh, now uh, a couple things is uh, I'm curious as to, uh, you can talk about why you were interested in writing it uh, momentarily maybe it's uh, for the same reason you're about to give but it seems as though this is a piece uh, to uh, that a number of people uh, f- from which they derive satisfaction uh, I saw a lot of people say things uh, uh, via Twitter to the, to the effect that they love this sort of thing. Uh, they are sharing it with their friends. I'm curious, what do you think is the sort of fascination that, that uh, the people might have with um, the uh, best, uh, or I should say the really the worst calls of, of the year um, being revealed? Well, it's, uh, it's for one thing, it's easily consumable because it's, uh, it's something that people can understand without any real problem. It's something that I don't think a lot of people would take the time to, to research, or maybe people don't have the means to research it. And I personally don't have the means to research it, but I do have a friend with a database, so then I had an indirect means. And uh, so I think it's it's something that's very, very simple for people to get. Uh, it's something that's, in a way, controversial. People love to just see bad calls. People, I mean, they love slipping out about that umpire and referee decisions all the time. This is always uh, grounds for complaint or discussion at the very least, and it, it gives people pleasure to to point out how flawed baseball is for some reason, which I, whatever. And uh, I think it's also a lot of fun, and I certainly have a lot of fun looking up extremes, which is why I've done so many posts about the most something or the least something about last season, because it's just it's fun to reflect on. You have so many infinite data points from a regular baseball season, and then within that you're going to have a lot of ordinary things. I mean, you have a Jason Vargas fastball, maybe, that's just another Jason Vargas fastball, and it's it's just ordinary pedestrian, nothing remarkable about it. But then you have all of these things that over the course of the season get lost, no matter how extraordinary they are, because there's just so much going on all the time that sometimes it's, it's nice to just sort of pause and, and reflect on the things that really did stand out that, that are grouped together where maybe one wouldn't have seen their immediate relationship at the time. Uh, yeah, the uh, I guess uh, are are there any exceptional Jason Vargas fastballs? 
Uh, I'm, I'll be damned if I'm not going to look for one. Well, it's not a matter anymore, so I, uh, I don't really care. But I can, I can, I can scratch some of the slowest one, perhaps the uh, the most centered one. That might be the, the you. I've been trying to think of how best to write again about that uh, that Jimmy Moyer pitch that Giancarlo Stanton hit like 122 miles per hour, right? You know, the home yes. run that uh, the forward. Yeah, everybody's familiar with that sequence of events, and I think what people remember most is, of course, what what Stanton did do it breaking the scoreboard with the hardest hit home run in, I think, hit tracker history or something. Mm-hmm. But uh, what people remember less, first of all, is that the Marlins crowd is going insane at the time. There was a time when the Marlins had a passionate audience, if only for one pitch and one swing. And uh, what's also forgotten is that Jamie Moyer might have thrown the worst pitch that's ever been thrown in uh, in baseball because it was, it was a Jamie Moyer pitch in a full count uh, down down the very middle of the plate to uh, to John Carlos Santos with the bases loaded. And I, I just can't imagine there having been a worse pitch in baseball. Uh, certainly not. I, I just can't quantify it, but certainly based on the, uh, the one data point result, I think there's an argument to be made that, you know, he, uh, he sure does not have a better pitch. Yeah, it's a, right, well, of course. I, well, because it was like, uh, I mean, it was a sub 80 mile per hour fastball, a middle end to, to Giancarlo Stanton, right? I think, I think, uh, I don't even think it was middle end. I think if you look at game day, it was just like, a. If you were, you take the strike zone and then you draw diagonals and then when they intersect, I think the pitch was just right in the very, very middle of, yeah. uh, of the zone too. Yeah, maybe the strongest hitter in baseball and a full count where he's looking for a pitch to uh, swing at. So, so yeah, yeah, it was a. Yeah, I guess you have to look at a, a couple of things. If you wanted to say that, I mean, you could say objectively the worst pitch thrown, which would probably have something to do with. Uh, well, there, I'm sure there are a certain number of variables you couldn't uh, you couldn't measure in that case, but certainly I think velocity would have velocity and placement would have to be the, the first two you'd look at. You'd look at. Yeah, I mean you could take this into extraordinary detail if you wanted to. You could try to identify Stanton's particular run value hot spots and then Jamie Moyer's run value hot spots and the value of that being whatever, like an 80 mile per hour pitch instead of 75 or 85 or 60 or what have you. And then you can just you could write a side of your paper about this if you wanted to. And we don't have enough hit effects information to say whether it got destroyed the most. But if if the ends justify the means, then it was the worst pitch we've seen, at least in, in the, uh, the home run tracker era. But uh, um, <clears throat> then you end up with a whole philosophical question. With regard to um, – I, I allow you just to state your uh, your biases on this. With regard to the, the worst uh, called ball and called strike, uh, I'm, I'm curious as to um, you have any sort of – uh, I guess uh, romance attached to uh, the the personal uh, personal error or the the presence of human human error or human judgment in uh, in baseball or if you uh, uh, would immediately allow allow robots to do everything. I used to be a little more uh, fervent. I love the idea of an automated strike zone. If you're speaking rationally, it doesn't make how excuse me it doesn't make any sense to have uh, a human game that we could. Governed better, governed by flawed humans, and in uh, with today's technology, because their flaws are more evident than they've ever been. But what I've come around to is, well, now I write for a living, and I need things to write about, and I like that these mistakes give material. It's just this endless stream of material, and it's not just for for writers, but if the purpose of baseball is something to be enjoyed, something to consume your time, some sort of entertainment, some sort of distraction from you know the the dark morbidity of daily existence. And I think that if you have an umpire who makes the correct call, then what you have to discuss 
is the baseball game. And if you have an umpire who makes an incorrect call, then what you have to discuss is the baseball game and, and an umpire and what could have happened I had the call gone another way, and you have these scapegoats, and it's just it plays into this. It just provides so much more to discuss. It provides an opportunity to be more emotional about everything, and to, I think that fans would really be missing something if we had a fully automated baseball experience. If it were just a game between teams, we would have a better idea, slightly, of who's the best team, who's the worst team, etc. Everything would be governed governed by the players, but. With the umpires, I think there is an element that if I were creating baseball now, I would not have umpires the way that the way that we do today. But I am definitely, I think, I could be easily convinced by the other stance. And that, that might even be my opinion. My opinion right now is I am caught in between do you think that, and the Do you think that there is maybe an optimal rate of, of poor call poor calls? Um, I, I mean, I'm sure it's you know it's on some sort of bell curve, right? Is how poor calls are made. Uh, but do you think there's do you think there's like an optimal rate of? Uh, well, so uh, I think there there has to be there has to be an optimal rate in theory because if if literally every single call in baseball were wrong, if strikes were balls and balls were strikes and catches were well, anyway, you know what wrong means, then I think that would uh, that would be a farce. That would not be anything. That would be a complete and utter reversal of the rules of baseball. That would be a different game. Which granted could be fun and odd. And I don't. I'm not going to investigate that any further. So there does have to be some optimal way where, if you want to allow for some human error to make the game more interesting, but you don't want everything to be wrong, then at some point there is a balance in the middle. What I don't know is where that balance is. And I think here's a question that I will now return ask to you. You have World Series Game Seven, and the last play of the World Series is decided by a a bad call or at least maybe a controversial call, but no, let's, let's go with a bad call. What do you think? What would you think about that circumstance? It changes who wins the game. It's like the, the Seahawks-Packers Monday night game. Yeah, right, and that's... All the, changes. Right, and, and I'll preface my answer by saying that I, um, I agree with you that if, if every call were wrong, or if most calls were wrong, and, and, and I think that, the, that that Seahawks-Packers game brought this to our attention, is that if if... <clears throat> uh, that, that, that your enjoyment of the game breaks down at that point uh, because it, right it becomes a farce. Uh, if if a game seven was decided, I mean I think uh, pardon me for not being able to do this uh, at, um, in the moment, but I, I think that certain important games have been decided uh, on on close calls. That really, none of them are coming to mind at the way, but I think it's, one of them involves the Cardinals uh, in in the eighties sometimes. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I would feel bad for one of the fan bases, and then, but the other one would be happy that they benefited from it. I mean, uh, right? I would never want it to hurt the integrity of the game, but I actually think that some amount of error, um, as you note, uh, makes the game more entertaining. Um, well, so do you think baseball is better or worse for having had Jim Joyce and Armando Galarraga? Um. Yeah, I mean, I was not really up. I mean, I was not personally uh, upset when Joyce got the call wrong, especially for I guess what it ultimately revealed. Like it, it allowed two men to behave um, virtuously in, a, in like under under duress, right? I mean, it was clear it was clear at that time that like Jim Joyce was like regretted the call, and I guess the sort of um, uh, elegance with which Armando Galarraga um, like reacted to it. 
I, th- I think that that was ultimately probably like instructive for us as people. Uh, right. But if, if you, if you had like programmed it ahead of time, it's like Jim Joyce will get this call ahead. Obviously that has a certain uh, level of cynicism to it. Um, and so, you know, it wouldn't have had that same effect. But yeah, I think ultimately, um, you know, it would have been nice if Armando Galarraga had a perfect game. But there, there were also like three other perfect games that season, weren't there? I don't, I don't know about that season because that was the season. Uh, that was 2010, wasn't it? Jesus. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember anything uh, in baseball before this year. <laughs> so basically, that I guess it turns out. I think, uh, I think the Giants won two World Series, but I don't remember uh, what the situation was. I remember there were a lot of. There's a lot of talk of like what's behind the recent spate of no hitters because there were like six. It's like, well, that is clearly just just noise. But mm-hmm. I guess you could talk about why why that's happening. Ultimately, your conclusion will be nothing. Yeah. But yeah, I think there were. But that uh, what was hard for me was that that happened at that point. I was running the uh, the estimation wing of uh, of baseball. The whole general baseball fight was all under my control. And of course, I was also writing Luck at Landing, so I was writing with the Mariners. And uh, I think about an hour. Hour and a half before that uh, that game, uh, Ken Griffey Jr. decided to uh, to retire in the middle of the season. So that was neat. And that was a neat night for for me to uh, to be working. Oh, that was a busy uh, night. To, uh, yeah, that was yeah that was uh, that was one of those those nights where you're like, oh, this is what I do for my job. <laughs> I mean, with regard to that sort of thing, though, I, I would say that I, I do not feel uh, particularly impassioned by it in one direction or the other. I also, because I feel like it, it's a, the, the narrative, um, in particular with regard to the Joyce Galarraga thing, the narrative for it is produced instantly. And, I mean, you can almost uh, you can almost write all of the articles uh, that will be written about it. Um, you know, or you at least you can provide an outline for them instantaneously because people will take one, uh, you know, a, a certain portion of the, of the uh, population uh, will be uh, indignant about it and call for, um, you know, instant replay immediately, and then another portion, uh, you know, especially uh, sports writers who who you know, have something to gain from uh, human interest stories, uh, they'll talk about the, you know the virtues of this particular call, um, and and so I feel like anytime you can see all of all possible narratives, um, almost the moment something happens like that, um, I suppose it's a, it's a little bit less interesting for me. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas, for example, I thought that your uh, your piece on uh, worst, especially the worst called ball, uh, reveals something. Um, it, it, in particular, I'm thinking of the. Um, I think it was the worst. The worst called ball was the the uh, Homer Bailey pitch. Uh, yeah. Is that right, Homer yeah. Bailey? And um, it uh, became clear that it was it was called the ball because Devin Mezzarocco. It was really Devin Mezzarocco because he caught it so poorly. He really stabbed at it. Yeah. Um, no, he uh, he did. He uh, he framed it poorly. Right, he and didn't it, frame it at all. Right, and the thing about that is, 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 uh, of course, I think that this uh, lends itself to a discussion that you, I think, you like to have all the time, uh, which concerns catcher framing, and uh, catcher framing is not a thing uh, if we have automated uh, uh, balls and strikes. But what, but what your piece, for example, revealed is is the importance of of catcher framing in a context when maybe we would not have expected it. And so I think like. Uh, finding narrative strains um, uh, unexpectedly is is a little bit more exciting than, for example, a situation like Joyce and Galarraga, where immediately as soon as the event happens, uh, the, you know, like the basic outlines of the you know various positions uh, are rather obvious. Mm-hmm. I will say also that I think part of the uh, 
the appeal of the, the Bailey pitch to, to Ryan Dempster and Devin Mesoraco is that on the very, very next pitch, Ryan Dempster just popped out back to the pitcher. So there were no consequences. The Reds even wound up winning that game. So it was a blown call. It had essentially no significance in the game as far as we can tell. I guess maybe had he gotten that pitch, everything could have changed, but that's unlikely. So there was, there was no regret. There was no anger over it. It was just like, a, what a what an odd quirk here. And I think those things are definitely easier to tolerate. It's 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 more uh, funny. It adds to the absurdity of the game a little bit in that uh, it was a fastball down in the very middle of the play that was called the ball. Like, this, this is the last thing that should happen. And it didn't matter. And so it's just kind of funny to look back and be like, oh, this is, I'm part of this stupid. I can't believe this happened. But um, I think there's definitely a difference between that and then if you have a bigger blown call, then that gets you a little more emotional. And for those who are emotionally invested uh, to a significant degree into a team, then to see that team get robbed by a blown call of some certain significance, that's just a, it's the height of unfairness, I think, in that your team was, was penalized uh, for reasons outside of their own performance, which is something that people don't want to accept. It's one of the reasons Seahawks fans like myself and others are still upset about that one Super Bowl that I won't get into here. And uh, <laughs> But then there's there's that argument there, well, is, is the Seahawks fan experience better for having gone through that Super Bowl, because it's just something, it's like a, it's a, an occasion for bonding with other Seahawks fans. You can just talk about how you, what you went through, and you can talk about how your job and how the Seahawks actually won that Super Bowl, that it was taken out of their hands, etc. And then, I mean, the rest of football doesn't really give a shoot, because it's, <laughs> you know, it's not their team. And, uh, it's not their team, they don't really care, it's just kind of funny, they tell Seahawks fans to get over it, and whatever, it's just a Super Bowl, they would have lost anyway. So, uh, I think it's this argument where right now, off the top of my head, I can't conclusively say which way is better or not, but I'm definitely open to the idea that a blown call of a considerable magnitude is not actually bad for the baseball fan experience overall or for even the baseball fan experience for the particular team that, uh, that winner loses. Right. Well, listen, uh, just on a couple things I want to say. Uh, one, I think it's, it's clear that um, you have a number of flaws. Uh, one of them is not this, though. In fact, I would say that this is a this is a, a strength that you have is that uh, you um, you do not jump to conclusions, uh, and this is one thing that I enjoy about your writing and your person as well, your whole person, because um, I've oh. seen I've seen your person and I've ta- I've talked to your person and your person uh, talked back, and I say that's one thing that's. Uh, uh, we've, uh, we've embraced persons. We've, uh, we've mutually embraced each other's persons. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. We we got all freaky on our persons. Um, the uh, here, here's another, here's the second thing I have to say is that uh, I have an eye exam soon. I have an eye exam uh, that I should probably walk to um, soon here. Uh, not not immediately though, and that leads to my third um, my third point, or it's a question really. Is um, this will be the last thing that I ask you about? <clears throat> Uh, now, of course, Major League Baseball starts uh, what, like the very end of uh, the very end of March, beginning of April. Um, yeah. In the meantime, however, there are three competitions of note, um, and I'm curious as to as to if any of them appeal to you and or to what degree. Uh, those are at the beginning of February, so it's like two weeks from now. Uh, the beginning of February is uh, the um, commences the Caribbean Series, which is the uh, sort of uh, round robin World Series type of event. Uh, between the winners of the uh, Mexican Pacific League, Puerto Rican League, and then the Venezuelan and Dominican Winter League. So uh, that's one competition. Uh, second is uh, college baseball 
Um, college baseball begins in mid-February. I don't know if you um, – I know that that worked as a nice proxy for me last year before uh, spring training games uh, were broadcast in mid-February. And then, of course, uh, the World Baseball Classic, that begins at the beginning of March. I'm curious, is, uh, again, like I say, uh, if, if at all or to what degree those competitions appeal to you. Well, I know it just skipped over entirely the actual spring training competition, which I can't even – I mean, that's, this, this is meaningful meaningful baseball. It's, anyway, uh, I've never been invested in uh, in the Caribbean series. I've never watched it. I've never paid attention to it. I understand that's sort of more more up your alley than it has been out of mine, but I'm going to trust, and I will ask for your confirmation that these games will be broadcast in some manner online. Yeah, do you know who uh... – uh, do you know who I will frequently ask about that is Harry Pavlidis. Harry, P- okay. Harry Pavlidis, a Greek-American, a fine Greek-American. I believe he lives in Chicago. They might not. Uh, Aren't they all fine Greek-Americans? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> they are. Yeah, to be Greek-American is to be fine. Uh, they're really the same. It's a, a property of uh, equality or something. Anyway, um, <clears throat> yeah, uh, yeah. so he usually, like if you pay attention to his Twitter account, he's usually good at finding feeds for that sort of thing. Um, well, that's wonderful. Yeah. I've, uh, I've had a lot of fun watching watching broadcasts of, of Latin American Winter Bowl before, uh, and so I think that uh, while I would not set out necessarily, I would not highlight the the date of the Caribbean Series on my calendar, which mm-hmm. I I don't have a calendar, but I will be a uh, I will be interested in if I can plan in advance, I can even maybe uh, get on your turf and and whip out some content pertaining to the Caribbean Series. Uh, so I think that is. That's certainly of some interest to me just because I love seeing how uh, different cultures respond to the game and, and how different cultures broadcast the game and how it's how it might be played differently. So it's it's a lot of fun to uh, to find maybe undiscovered players or players that you had uh, that have fallen off the major league radar that are still alive elsewhere. College baseball has never really held a particular appeal to me. I don't really care too much for uh, for collegiate athletics. Uh, certainly not at this point in my life. So I. I have a pretty hard time caring about college baseball. While I can't tell you why that is, why I would be not interested in that and would be somewhat interested in, uh, in the Caribbean series, uh, that is that is the way that I feel. And ultimately, I guess I don't need to provide a rationalization. I'm willing to honor it, Sullivan. I will honor it. All right. Well, I, I appreciate you. He's being honored. I okay. just interest coupon. <laughs> And then and the, uh, for yeah, the, keep going, keep going. The, yeah, the uh, the World Baseball Classic is coming up, and I uh, last time there was a World Baseball Classic was in at least some of the games were in San Diego when I was still in San Diego, and I attended some of the games, and it was it was a, a really good time, and I had a lot of fun uh, just watching the different, not participating. I didn't have a team; I was rooting for it necessarily in that pool of competitors, but it was a lot of fun to uh, to watch a baseball game that has a vocal an animated audience to it, which uh, I, a lot of games don't. I'm a Mariners fan, so no games <laughs> have, have a, uh, an audience to speak of. And it's just a... I, sometimes I get jealous watching, uh, I don't know, a hockey game or a football game where the crowds just get so so into it, and baseball doesn't have that. It's more leisurely halftime, and yet it's so much more fun when the fans are just hanging on every pitch, which, of course, you can't do. Uh, reasonably, because there are so many hundreds of thousands of pitches thrown by each team during a season. But it, uh, to me, it enhances the experience. I love uh, the randomness of it all in that the tournament is in no way meaningful uh, in terms of determining which country is the best or the worst. It, uh, 
at baseball, especially with so many players just dropping off rosters or not not participating at all. But in terms of uh, just uh, the emotion behind it and the atmosphere and the different way that the game is played and observed, I think it's a lot of fun. And uh, I love watching celebrations of tournaments that people think are meaningful. And the players certainly enjoy it, so uh, it's neat for them. Yeah, it is tough. I, I think it's, uh, in particular, if I'm not mistaken, with uh, pitchers, uh, it, you will frequently find. I, I know that I was looking at the Canadian team. I believe uh, Jesse Crane is the best pitcher on that team. There were really no oh. notable uh, starters. Uh, I think uh, Adam Lowen had maybe one of the best uh, pitching records of any team on it, and uh, of any player on that team. Oh. And uh, oh, of course, he, oh. he doesn't even pitch anymore. Um, Ryan Dempster is a possibility. Oh, I think not a not a very good one for that Canadian team. So uh, yeah, so the quality of the starting pitching, um, uh, I think, is usually uh, not excellent so far as that's concerned. Uh, now, uh, b- uh, before we go, I will uh, I, I mentioned it briefly, but I will invite you uh, officially to the um, Arizona State's uh, game on March 13th, the evening of March 13th. Uh-huh. Uh, we're both uh, we're, going to uh, be... we're doing this. Yeah, we're talking about this on the uh, on the podcast. Uh, yes, this is yep. We're going. Right, well, then I will uh, I will respond accordingly. I'm inviting okay. you. Do you accept the invitation? I almost that is uh, Wednesday night. You said. Yeah. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm looking to come down on uh, on Tuesday the 12th or Wednesday the 13th, and if I come down Wednesday the 13th, I will probably come down in the morning, and so I would be there and plug you. Long story short, I would I would I would love to watch an Arizona State baseball game with you against whatever team they might be playing of of the legit amateurs. Yeah, it's New Mexico, so uh, you know it could. Uh, anyway, it seems it's just like a one-off game. It's not part of a series, which is typically. We're actually coming right in between games against Long Beach State and uh, Washington State, who are probably more formidable. So, here's my question to you before uh, before you walk to your eye appointment, because you really should not drive to your eye appointment. Is what what is the uh, particular appeal of Arizona State? Is it just the convenience of, of them being there, or are they a good team? Well, they they are. They have traditionally been a very good team. Uh, I also like I like college baseball. Um, for example, uh, like because I followed University of Florida a bunch uh, last year, watched a bunch of their games. I was able to see a lot of Mike Zanino uh, uh, before he before he was drafted third overall, and then uh, and uh, even I guess more before, further before uh, he um, absolutely uh, um, he, or he performed excellently at, at a number of different levels in the minor leagues. So you know, so you have a, a sense of uh, of this player. Uh, uh, this or that player, and uh, it's fun. It's also because, um, you know, just the nature of it. Uh, there's a great, there's a greater, uh, <clears throat> there is a greater uh, um, diversity of, you know, player quality, and um, because of that, you see, uh, you see uh, body types that you might not normally see in the majors <laughs> or even the minors, uh, and uh, I, I, I like it for for that reason too. Um, and uh, it, you know, it's just it's just like um, a number. You know, it's even more players about whom to to have ideas. So, for example, I, I became quite attached to a, um, a third baseman for Florida State uh, last season, in particular during the, the College World Series. But before that, named Sherman Johnson. Uh, Sherman mm-hmm. Johnson's his his uh, his play discipline numbers um, were silly. Uh, despite the fact that you know it's it's wholly possible that he's never going to reach the major leagues. I think he was taken in like the. 13th round or something and you know as like a 22 year old he you know he played rookie ball or low a this past year so uh you would not necessarily say that his pedigree is excellent uh but there was something certainly amusing about his his uh 
skill set. And again, you, you do see some skill sets in, in, in college that you just, they have no business being in the majors, but that doesn't make them, you know, any less enjoyable. Right. Uh, no, I think that, uh, with, with Sherman Johnson, perhaps his, his major league prospects are, are limited and, and rightfully so, even the best players have limited major league prospects. But Sherman Johnson might be a good bet for the, uh, the major league of Sherman, where there would be a lot less, a lot less competition. If there were only people league. named Sherman? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, just only, only people named Sherman. Only first name Sherman as well, not that that's really much of a, no. Actually, hold on, because I think maybe this maybe this we could find room for for Terry Shumpert. Uh, I think that's uh, it's within a similar category. Right. Name. Well, so if you just have, yeah. Yeah. Well, I was thinking yeah. that maybe uh, maybe Nat Nat Sherman could design their cleats or something like this. I believe he's a he's a cobbler of some sort. Nat Sherman. I don't know precisely. <laughs> Listen, I should probably go to my eye appointment. Uh, but uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Um, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Stick around for a second. Uh, um, bid you do off there, but. For now, I'll say I'll say uh, thank you for uh, thank you for joining the podcast, Jeff Sullivan. Thank you for enjoying it. All right, that is Jeff Sullivan. I'm Carson Stooley, and it's been Fangraphs Audio.